This Israel report is brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you're based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebueagency.com. The Israel Report for the latest news and insights with Anthony Reich. Anthony Reich, Bokitov, good morning. How are you? Oh, gosh, uh, Anthony. Bokitov, oh, there we go. Oh, we can hear you. How are okay. you doing? Bokitov, yeah, so much to talk about for this uh, Rosh Hashanah weekend. I wanted to start with a sports story. Um, relating to the Israeli national team who played against Belarus the day before yesterday. They're playing in the 2024 Euro qualifying matches, mm-hmm. and they're in um, a group which is uh, quite tough, uh, they're including Switzerland and Romania, who are the, the current leaders of that group. But Israel the day before yesterday played against Belarus here at Bloomfield Stadium in Tel Aviv. The score at the end of the game was 1-0 in favor of Israel, the goal being scored in the 93rd minute by Gabi Kanakovsky. Gabi Kanakovsky um, is uh, a midfielder playing for the Israeli national team. It was his fourth appearance for Israel and his first goal. Um, but he comes from a, a family who are formerly South African. And uh, some of the listeners out there might know the Kanakovskys. And this is a great um, advert uh, for um, immigrants to Israel, people who've made Aliyah and have managed to really do so well Amazing. for Israel and Gabi, in this case, scoring the winning goal um, on behalf of the Israeli national team. So that's a great result and, of course, a great credit to the Kanakovsky family as well and to all of those who've made Aliyah from South Africa in the past. Um, we're not going to talk very much about the ongoing court case, um, which uh, is covering the reasonableness law. We've got too many other things that we want to talk about. But yesterday was quite fascinating because um, Justice Minister Yariv Levine appeared in the court and he asserted that he is the only one who has the right to convene the Judicial Selection Committee. The Judicial Selection Committee was uh, a matter that was being discussed yesterday amongst the 15 judges um, along with the various legal teams. And the Minister of Justice himself was there to say, nobody can force me to convene the Judicial Selection Committee because the judges were very much uh, tending towards saying, why is it? that you haven't convened the Judicial Selection Committee. We are short of judges and we desperately need new judges. Why is it that um, you haven't convened it and maybe there should be some sort of an order to force you to convene the Judicial Selection Committee and to uh, choose those judges who are, are currently lacking in the court system? And he was very determined to say that he is the only one who has the right to do so and that he will not do so until he feels it is the right moment.
Very, very interesting. And, of course, it's a story that will continue. Uh, we'll see where this goes. But I did want to talk to you about the Otsma Yehudit Party because they seem to have suspended its support for the coalition due to the Prime Minister not agreeing to change conditions of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. So uh, what does this mean? I mean, does this have significance to the to the coalition? Well, let's first talk about the story that, that went down and what's been happening over the last few days, and then let's talk about what the significance of this decision is. So in the first instance, of course, we're talking about Itamar Ben-Gvir, who's Israel's national security minister, and he decided that he feels it is appropriate to make life a little bit more difficult for Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. That was um, his agenda item that he's trying to follow. And um, he decided that instead of allowing prisoners to have a once a month visitation from members of their family outside the prison, he was going to reduce the visitation rights to once every second month. That was his plan. Right. And he presented that. And the attorney general then intervened and said, no, you don't have the right to do this. This is not okay. And um, uh, um, Itamar Benvir said, well, I will appeal to the prime minister and see what the prime minister has to say on this issue. And the prime minister came back saying, we'll talk about this in October. So effectively, he didn't say yes and he didn't say no. But he just said, okay. we'll delay right. the decision. Right. And the understanding is that the prime minister's decision to delay um, this uh, particular discussion mm. relates to advice that has been given from the security establishment, which says that especially now, ahead of the holiday season, ahead of the Chagim that we're about to go into, it is not the right time to fiddle around with the conditions of Palestinian prisoners because that could have quite significant security impact on the safety of people as we go about celebrating our Chagim, and that's not what we want to do right now. There could potentially be um, some sort of an uprising in the prisons. There has been talk about members of the family um, getting together outside of the prisons in order to protest any change to their rights. And so for now, at least, the Prime Minister hasn't said no, but he's just said not at this time. We will talk about it in October after the Chagim. So, of course... Um, Itamar ben in his role as the National Security Minister, then went on to say, actually, he's the only one who has the right to decide these things. And he even supersedes the Prime Minister where these decisions are concerned, something which clearly isn't the case at all, because if that was the case, the decision would have been made and it would have been implemented. But it's not. Mm, and so mm. he feels that the, uh, his legs have been taken out from under him, that his power has been reduced. And as a result of that, he made an announcement yesterday that Otsma Yehudit, which of course is a member of the governing coalition, will suspend their support of the coalition. And what that potentially means is that the coalition doesn't have a governing majority. The only problem is yeah. that they don't need their governing majority right now because the Knesset is in recess until the end of October. And so until then, at least, this decision has absolutely zero impact on the governing uh, the governance of the state of Israel and on any decisions that the government needs to make because right now the government is operating without a Knesset until the Knesset reconvenes at the end of October. So I think it's a little bit of a storm in a teacup. It's a little bit um, like uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir again suddenly realizing mm. that all this power that he thought he has, he doesn't really have because there are 
people like the Attorney General and the Prime Minister who have the right to say no to any of some any of the ideas that he might want to come up with, which may have a detrimental effect on the State of Israel and its security, even though he thinks that it is the right thing to do to reduce the rights of Palestinian prisoners in jails. And by the way, I'd like to ask listeners out there what they think, if they think it's the right thing to do to somehow make the life mm-hmm. of those mm-hmm. prisoners, many of whom have carried out terror attacks against Israelis, if it is the right thing to do to make their lives in prison more difficult, more more unbearable, to, to give them um, more of a punishment than what they currently have at the moment. Because there is a view that says that life in an Israeli prison isn't really such a big punishment. There are so many things that people are allowed to Mm. do. Mm. Yeah, like PlayStation, for example. There are many things that, uh, you know, prisoners prisoners around the world wouldn't have the right to do, but yet in Israeli prisons they do have the right to do. They can get visitations. They're allowed to study. There are many, many things that they do have the right to do. And the question is whether it's the right approach to make their lives in prison more difficult um, greater punishment, whether that might have uh, some sort of a desired effect of making it uh, more uh, uh, to, to create more of a barrier for um, those who wish to carry out terror attacks in the future to try and discourage them from doing so. But nevertheless, at the moment, Itamar Gwenvir, I think, is feeling like his power has been taken out from under his feet and that the only thing that he could really do is make this threat for his party not to support the coalition until the next announcement, whenever Mm. that Mm. is going to be. Because I think his options are very limited. In other words, I don't think he really has an alternative to being in the coalition. If he decides to remove himself from the coalition and potentially bring the government down, which may or may not happen, I don't think he's got anything else that would give him the sort of exposure and the sort of uh, authority that he has right now Mm. as Mm. the Minister of National Security. Well, Leslie says, and I don't think she is a classic liberal in this sense, she says they should be run like a Peruvian jail, make them work for their basic rights, uh, or their family must pay for them. Right. So, mm, <laughs> she's clearly a okay. member of Ben Queer's party. Um, but uh, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about other subjects. The Haredi protesters, Haredi protesters yesterday demonstrated against the arrest of a draft dodger. So, uh, uh, where is this situation now leading to? Well, this is all very confusing because we do know that the draft law as it pertains to the Haredim is really not settled. In other words, there is no new law that has been enacted. The current situation is that there are many uh, of the Haredi community who are liable for national service, who haven't turned up for national service, Mm -hmm. and there was something of a blind eye being turned to things because of the current lack of um, clarity as to what the situation is. And yet there was one member of the Haredi community who was arrested over the past few days. He apparently has now already been released from a military prison. I'm not exactly sure what the arrangements are that would have allowed him to have been released without turning up for national service as he is required to do by law. But as a result of his arrest, there were hundreds of ultra-Orthodox men who staged protests not only across Jerusalem, but also in Bnei Brak. And a huge call was put out to demonstrate by one of the extremist factions called uh, the Jerusalem Faction. They were out on the streets, they were stopping traffic on the major roads, um, and they were really making themselves felt 
especially ahead of the high holidays. One of the things that really, really concerned me was one of the signs that was held up by a demonstrator in the street. And the sign read, a Holocaust is preferable to recruiting yeshiva students. Now, now, oh, um, when they oh, start oh. Uh, evoking the Holocaust, because it's not only that, right? The police who come to, 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 to supervise these riots are always called Nazis. This is already standard practice. When you have um, a demonstration of ultra-Orthodox and the police come along to try to, put, to, to supervise it, um, whether the demonstration is legal or not legal, they inevitably get called Nazis. This is standard. And I think that we need somehow to put a stop to this. I think it's inappropriate. I think we have a lot to say about non-Jews, people out there around the world who evoke the Holocaust for negative purposes. I think that we do not have the right to do this, and we don't have the desire to do this. I think it's just extremism misplaced in the wrong context. And I think that at some point, people need to turn around and respect the victims of the Holocaust and to respect what went down at that time and not evoke the term Nazis and evoke the Holocaust when talking about current day activities, which really have nothing to do with what happened in the Holocaust. So I yeah, feel very, very know, strongly I, I, that this is just yeah, not okay. I tend to agree with you. And, and, and to some extent, it's the same with, with the, the word apartheid. You might not like something. There might be discrimination. There might be something that doesn't sit well, but not everything is apartheid. And not everything right. that you don't like is the Holocaust. And not everybody you don't like is a Nazi. And it's interesting because as you were talking about it, I was thinking, you know, they're very strict and stringent rules in Germany about what can be said, what, what can be displayed uh, in terms of the Holocaust and in terms of its Nazi history in order to protect the sanctity of that memory and the horror that it really was. Shouldn't Israel actually be doing the same thing? In other words, a very, very uh, criminalize causing, calling somebody a Nazi if they aren't. That's the only way to protect the integrity of that horrific memory. Otherwise, it gets watered down like apartheid's been watered down, and nothing at the end of the day has any meaning. I absolutely 100% agree with what you've said. Um, I find it very offensive when people start evoking the Holocaust, start talking about Nazis. I find it very problematic, and I absolutely hate it, and I um, very much um, would support any idea that um, Israel would um, enact some sort of a law that would prevent people from having the right to mm. evoke these mm. things. When I see um, the word Holocaust, a Holocaust is preferable. Really, a Holocaust can't be preferable to anything, to anything. It was one of the most horrendous events in world history, and there's no ways that that could be preferable to anything. Or another protester, for example, said, I'd rather get shot than enlist. Really? You'd rather get shot than enlist. So this is a person who's representing a religious point of view, saying, I'd rather get shot than enlist. I, I find that to be extremely offensive and inappropriate to come from a religious perspective. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I've had my say. Um, I know we're also running out of time. 
And I didn't want to miss out on talking about some of the statistics ahead of Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, unfortunately, we are. Unless you can stay on after the news, Anthony, is it possible to bring you back for a few minutes after the news? Do you have uh, do you do have that. capacity? Great. So we're going to go to uh, we're going to go to news headlines. Uh, we've got we're going to go to a song straight after that. We'll be back with Anthony around about ten past eight because we do need to talk about these statistics. It's one of my favourite things all year round. And uh, then I can also wish Anthony and uh, everybody in his family a Shana Tova. It's eight o'clock. I'm Howard. Feldman. Good morning. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. It is ten past eight. I'm Howard Feldman. This is your morning mayhem. It's 101.9 High FM. It's the 14th of September 2023, 28th of Elul 57383. And we've asked Anthony Reich to stay on the line here. He brings us the Israel report around about 7.45 every day. But today we wanted to talk about something that uh, information that always comes out this time of year, and that is stats around uh, the Israeli population. Anthony Rach, thank you for uh, holding on and uh, and continuing to speak to us. So, uh, what are the latest? What is the latest information in terms of the statistics that have been released? So, in terms of statistics, just ahead of Rosh Hashanah, the official uh, population of Israel is 9,795,000 people. And that's an increase of almost 200,000 people over the last year. And so those people who are good at numbers can work out that by the time we get to this time next year, the Israeli population will be on the verge of breaking through 10 million, which I think is a very significant Mm. moment. Mm. Um, Of those 9,795,000 people, 7,181,000 are Jewish. Seven, almost 7.2 million people, which means that 73% of the people living in Israel are Jewish. There is a, there are a little over 2 million Arabs representing about 21% of the population with about 550,000 other people who are neither Jewish nor Arab. But here I think is really, uh, what uh, is interesting for me that out of the Jewish population who are aged 20 and over, 44% classify themselves as secular or non-religious. 44%. Wow, that's quite high. I wouldn't have, I would have thought it would, it would be less than that. So when we look at the secular or non-religious, mm-hmm. then it includes as well, sorry, so that, yeah, 44% are secular or non-religious, which shows that it's almost Almost 50% mm, mm. of the population. And we've spoken a lot over the last few weeks about Israel's lack of a majority in any respect. Um, but we are probably getting quite close in this instance to a relative majority in terms of religious observance. Almost half the population consider themselves to be secular or non-religious. On the other end of the spectrum, almost 11% of the population are consider themselves to be ultra orthodox, also known as Haredi, mm-hmm. and another eleven and a half percent consider themselves to be religious. So that means that the religious element of Israel's population is around twenty two percent. Then the bits in the middle are people who consider themselves to be secular Sorry, to consider themselves to be traditional. And we've got two groups of traditional people. We've got those who are traditional and non-observant. And we've got people who are traditional and are observant. So 
20%, 21% in fact, consider themselves to be traditional but not very observant, while 11.7% consider themselves to be traditional and observant. And now, exactly how we define uh, traditional and observant but not religious, I'm not really sure exactly where all of the, the lines are drawn on these matters. But I think it does make an interesting point about you know, what I've been saying all along, which is that we really don't have any majority. And when we look at the religious population, we're talking about when we combine the ultra-Orthodox with the modern Orthodox, it's about 22%. There are lots and lots of claims about the relative birth rates of various parts of Israeli society and the fact that the ultra-Orthodox, because they have a much higher birth rate than most of the other groups, will ultimately become much more dominant. But currently, they are 11% of the population. So I think we need to really stretch things out quite significantly to understand when it might happen and if it might happen that that group becomes so dominant as mm, some people mm, fear they mm. may do. Um, and I say fear because those are the people who are talking about this particular aspect are people who fear that the, the ultra-Orthodox may have a wider um, control over our society. So I'll just leave our statistics there and just wish you guys all Shana Tova and Chag The announcement has been made that in Jerusalem at least there will be armed guards mm. at each and every synagogue, each and every shul, at least in Jerusalem and perhaps elsewhere around Israel, in order to, just to combat the current wave of terror that we've been experiencing. Obviously, shuls are a clear target over Rosh Hashanah, and we're heading into Rosh Hashanah tomorrow evening. I hope that for all of you, it will mean the start of a good, happy, and healthy new year, and, of course, that you will enjoy the Chag. Uh, we will, of course, be endeavoring to do so as well. Um, I wish you all Shana Tova, Chag Sameach, and, of course, Shabbat Shalom. Anthony Reich, thank you as always and wishing you and your family a Shanatova, a uh, wonderful, sweet year ahead, a safe year ahead, and let's hope that many of these issues that we have spoken about over and over this year are resolved during the coming year. It is 8.16. I'm Howard Feldman. Good morning. That Israel Report was brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you're based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebluagency.com.